Hello and welcome to Where Am I To Go podcast. Today we're at Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, and I happen to be at a tattoo museum of all places. And this place is really quite interesting. I am with Jay, and you guys are going to learn that Lauren has no idea about anything about tattoos, but Jay's going to get me informed, and hopefully you also. I've seen some of his work on uh, the internet, and he does an awesome job with uh, the tattoos. The artwork is just amazing. But uh, Jay's going to take us through here and get us started, and we're going to learn about tattooing today. Right. Okay, Jay, uh, how long have you been in the tattoo business? Uh, I've been in the tattoo uh, trade for uh, 34 years now. Oh, is that started, all? Started out <laughs> back in 1986, yeah. Wow. Just, just a little while. So. <clears throat> just a little while. Yeah. And uh, you started this museum? I started the museum about a decade ago. Um, I started, I was actually, uh, at the time I was down in Moscow, Idaho, which is where the University of Idaho is. And what um, I had taken my collection of, uh, I'd been collecting stuff for years and years and years and piling it up in boxes and whatnot. And, and my wife would always ask me, what, why the hell do you have all this stuff? And well, you can see why now. But um, I decided that in my shop there that I would um, get it all out into the open so people could see it and you know put it on display. And that's kind of where the museum started. And then of course I have a passion for history and, and uh, we were at that point where tattoo history for a long time was all um, passed down from you know one generation to the next, all and spoken. You know, nobody really wrote anything down. So uh, here in the last you know 20 years, I would say 15, 20 years, people have started to take more interest in the history and preserving it and whatnot. So um, you have collectors who have large collections of stuff, and then you have uh, the museums, which are folks like me who uh, want to share it with everybody. So, and, and you were saying that there aren't many museums. You're the only um, one kind of on the West Coast? Well, or? the Northwest. In the Northwest. There's, there's probably six, seven on the West Coast. Um, All together, I think that Tattoo Archive recognizes about 25 uh, tattoo museums. And there's there's new ones that are starting you know, here and there. Uh, uh, it seems like more and more. Uh, and the cool thing is, is they're starting to go like by state or region, you know, so it's like, um, I think one of the goals of a lot of, uh, I know the tattoo archive, uh, uh, as well as a lot of museum owners is, uh, that it would be really neat to see a tattoo museum in every state, you know, and then that way you could go from state to state. And he actually, uh, took the one down off of his, uh, website. It's probably cause he's putting another one together, but he had like a tattoo road trip. Uh, across America map. Really? You could actually, like, if you wanted to plan a trip to go to tattoo museums, you could. The problem was is it was real heavy on the east side of the country and very light on the, on the, on on the, the west, west side. So, yeah, once you, there, there's tons of them once you pass the, you know, on the other side of the Mississippi River, but on this side uh, of the Mississippi, it's not, there's not so many. So. And you said he took that down off of his website? It, it, it goes up and it goes up and down as he, I imagine it might be up there again 
Uh, last time I looked, it was down because I know he was adding more names to the deal. So, okay. You Do you know, know what what the website is? Oh, it's just the tattooarchive.com. Tattoo Archive. Okay. Yeah. And so it's if somebody's great, interested in touring tattoo museums, that's that would the way be a to place to, to get an idea. Uh, the other thing about Tattoo Archive that's really cool is they have an online history um, section. So it's not like doesn't cover every bit of tattoo history, but it's kind of an A to Z that you can go through and you can actually um, see different bits about different people in, in, in tattoo history and tattoo uh, over the years. And then also they have a, uh, an extensive uh, bookstore uh, okay. available as well. So um, they have a lot of books you know, that can be bought you know, on the subject of tattooing. Uh, specifically, so either uh, supply companies or specific uh, uh, characters in the trade, uh, times, uh, okay. areas. There's just it covers a lot of different uh, stuff. I've actually considered um, getting together with him and putting a, a big section right over there for books for sale that are oh. on, on. So when people come in, they can actually, like you would at most museums, flip right. through some yeah. material and go, "Hey, how much is this one?" At the gift shop. Yeah, yeah. at the gift shop. Yeah, yeah. So. And people can probably hear in the background we've got a buzzing going on because somebody's getting a yep, tattoo right now. Yeah, actually getting tattooed, yeah. And so you're using some sort of an electric... Uh, yeah. Explain that process if you can. Well, ta ta when tattooing first came about, which goes back to probably 10,000 years ago, everything was done in, in basically up until modern times, which we say electricity. Okay. So before that, tattooing was either done by uh, pushing... Uh, poking or tapping. So basically it was either pushed in with a series of pins and kind of pushed in one dot at a, at a time. And they would uh, use an ink or a charcoal yeah, or? A carbon-based ink okay. uh, mostly. So um, the, the uh, you know in the really old old days I'm sure it was spit water and, and uh, and uh, uh, charcoal. Okay. You know, that's what they, that's what they would use traditionally. Um, but it varied from from area to area and culture to culture. But um, so there was the poking, and then there was the pushing, which was the the, the method that the Japanese used, um, and where it was more of a the the uh, um, needles were affixed to a long haft, and they were actual needles as opposed to the poking aspect of it uh, could be. Uh, Thorns. It could have been uh, needles. It could have been, you know, depending on time period and, and culture and, and all that. Uh, and what would be the advantage to the pushing over the uh, poking? Uh, they're they're very similar, but the Japanese got it down to more of a fine art. And with the the movement of the tool and everything, they could work much faster. Okay. And so, so and then the tapping, which is the uh, where that word tattoo actually came from, which was tatau, and it was from the Polynesian islands, Borneo, and all those areas like that, uh, uh, Pacific Islands, they would actually have a haft with a kind of a rake deal on it that okay. had shark's teeth or thorns or fish bones or whatever, and then uh, it would almost look like a rake. And then they would have a stick to tap with, and they would dip that rake tool into the ink, and then they would tap, 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 and it would move the tool and it would leave lines as they went. And so okay. very big in, in Polynesian culture and all that. It's the way they still do it to this day. Um, well, they do use uh, modern electric stuff as well, but uh, and so do the Japanese. And then they do half of it one way, half of the other. Um, so that was pretty much those were the methods. Um, there were other forms of uh, body modification. They did some, uh, some cultures had sewing where they actually took thread and a needle and they ran ink and then 
sewed underneath the skin, oh, which really? I think would be very, very difficult to do, but they, they did it. Um, you know, so but I would consider that more of a body modification than a tattoo because a tattoo to me is ink that's been implanted into the skin, you know, via being pushed in by needles, I guess. I and how know, deep guess. do you need to go into the skin? Um, do you go down into the muscle at all? No, or is it no, just we in don't. The we stay, layer in, we the stay in the dermal layer of the skin, so that's the very, we don't go what they call subcutaneous, so we don't go below the fat layer, and actually we don't even go into the fat layer. We stay in the, there's a upper layer of your skin, which is the epidermis, which is the, the layers of skin that is, is constantly dying and sloughing off. And then you have the dermal layer of skin, which is where the tattoo pigment is put in, and that's the living skin uh, tissue right there. That's your actual living skin cells. How tattoos work is the pigment particles are small enough to be able to be pushed into the skin, but too big to be rejected or ingested. Okay, so they, just stay, so they just stay right there in right. that one spot. They stay in that one layer of your skin, and that's, that's where they reside. And so your body will ingest a little bit of it or reject a little bit of it, but not much because those particles are too big for them to go anywhere. They're locked in there. And because skin has elasticity, elasticity <laughs> that's a hard one to say, <laughs> um, it, it, um, when the needle goes into the skin, it pushes it in, pushes the pigment in, and then when the needle comes out, it actually snaps, the skin snaps back. And so it implants that pigment particle into, the, into that living tissue. So it's there with your living skin for the rest of your life. And so that being said, that's why you see older tattoos, maybe 40, 50 years old, that have kind of, the lines look like they've spread out and they're just not quite as crisp and clean as they used to be. And it happens to pretty much all tattoos. Um, and that's because your skin cells grow for the rest of your life constantly. And so we all get old, we get a little wrinkly, the skin gets a little, you know, thinner and all that. And, and so uh, with the movement of your skin cells, the pigment itself moves as well. So. so when you're considering getting a tattoo, it's good to get one that's going to look good when you get old. Yeah, yeah. You want to take take that into consideration? Absolutely. Does the tattoo artist know which ones are going to be yeah, most usually, effective? That and way? actually, I mean, I wouldn't say everyone does, but I mean, we go. But we're all we. we Richard gave us the nickname of the old folks' home <laughs> one time because everybody who's tattooing here has got over 25 years of, uh, or more of experience, and we're all over 50. So, <laughs> but uh, we always take that in consideration when we're tattooing somebody that if. Uh, like lettering is a perfect example. If the lettering is too small and too tight, it's going to turn into blobs. You know, I tell people that's not going to last. It might look good for 10 years and then it's going to go, you know, it's going to fade. It's going to bleed together or whatever. So uh, a lot of times when people are getting tattoos, we try to point them in the right direction, you know, because we have that experience, you know. Right. When you've got 25 years or more under your belt, you pretty much, you've been around long enough to see what something looks like in 15 years, you know, or so, even on your own body. So, right. You know, it kind of, it kind of uh, uh, helps. And then that way you can, you know, make sure the customers are getting a good uh, quality piece that is going to last them a, a lifetime and not turn to mush. So, but uh, I don't know if everybody goes that far. I mean, some people might say, well, just, hey, that's what you want, let's do it kind of thing. And, and you have to do that within, you know, a certain amount of reason, but, you know, there's a point where you can kind of draw a line and say, hey, you know, 
this might not last or you know that's that's that won't work in the future but once you've done that it's kind of up to them to decide what they really yeah, want and then to, the, yeah right? yeah it's like a, the thing I do with names I, I don't I I I'm the tattoo names on people but the first thing I always tell them is the only names you should ever get tattooed on you is is lost loved ones and family members because not not your recent girlfriend? No. <laughs> well, because your lost loved ones will always be your lost loved ones. And uh, your relatives, your family members, even if they disown you, you're still related to them. They're still your family members. So uh, girlfriends, boyfriends, husbands, wives, those things tend to change. And we've seen tons of it and covered a lot of it up over the years. So I always tell people, you know, that's that's how I start off, you know, and I tell them that's what you should get. And I tell them again, second, oh, no, I want it. And then the second time comes around, I, I give them another shot. And I say, well, you know, oftentimes, you know, tattoos are permanent, relationships are not, you know. So do you well, really no, can you do erase this? a tattoo? Uh, not, with a, not with an eraser. I've got a, a razor blade over here that... Uh, that uh, might work. I got a straight razor over there. We got the sandpaper in the back. They have laser removal, but yeah, they're pretty permanent. Uh, uh, yeah, there's not really much getting getting <laughs> getting them out except for laser removal. There was some back in the day. They were they would tattoo acids and different things like that into uh, into the skin. They would do dermabrasion, which is really hardcore uh, things like that to to remove tattoos. So. So there's a, another reason not to get your girlfriend's name on you, <laughs> uh, you know. And then, and and then, the, you know, after I kind of get them three times, you know, are you sure? And they say, yeah. And I'm just like, okay, whatever. You well, know, yeah, if that's what they it. want. That's, yeah, what, that's you what you do. want. That's what you want. But I'm gonna try to steer you away from mistakes I've seen right. in the past. So. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> now, so. is there are people allergic to the ink at all, or is this um, actually really quite safe? It's, and and what about days, the regulation part? It's, it, it, these days, it's pretty pretty safe because I it, like if you go back years, inks have changed considerably over the years and over the years. Um, you know, in in early on, you know, black was probably the safest color. Uh, tattooers uh, experimented with inks and pigments uh, to see what would work and what wouldn't. Um, some reds were mercurial reds, so they actually the skin rejected them and caused the skin to, to bubble up and whatnot. I mean, there's been everything from, uh, you know, uh, you name it has been tried for, for a pigment, you know, uh, watercolor paints, uh, uh, Higgins ink, I mean, just all kinds of stuff. So in the beginning, they found black, and then there was basically three colors that worked, red, green, and yellow, and red was iffy. So there was a lot more reaction to red as, as time went on. Now, the Japanese... On another part of the world where we're, you know, and this is had their pigments perfected and knew what was in tattoo pigment, you know, what was what worked well for colors and, and all that. So at some point, a couple of tattooers kind of made a connection with the Japanese uh, part of uh, tattooing, kind of brought those two, you know, electric uh, American tattooing and Japanese uh, tattooing kind of together and traded some secrets and whatnot. And so then the color. Uh, thing uh, opened up. A lot of the pigments nowadays are all cosmetic um, grade, you know, pigments and whatnot. So they're they're um, really high standard uh, as far as all that's concerned. Whereas in the old days, you might be a little iffy about what's good and what's bad. Um, there was a point in time where, like I said, there was three colors, then there was five, you know, then there was like seven. Seven was a big deal if you had seven colors, you know, because you had 
a nice broad spectrum. Now there's probably 140 different, I mean, there's, there's companies out there that you can buy 40, 50 different shades of, of you know, a palette, big palette set wow. so that you don't have to uh, mix this color and that color to make it this color. You don't have to lighten or darken anything. It's already pre set up for you. So, and some guys really like to have a hundred different, you know, bottles of color. And then there are guys that are more traditional that have, uh, you know, might only have 14 colors or 15 colors. You know? And then I, myself, I'm like that. And then I mix, you know, one color with another color and, and, and all that and actually make, uh, different tones and hues that way, as opposed to uh, having a pre-mixed uh, color. But I, these days, colors are safe. They're really safe. Um, and they stay bright you know, for a long time. They really last, which is cool. Yeah. But um, that, for a long time, was experimentation. It really was. I, I think until they started getting into cosmetic uh, uh, colorings and whatnot, things like that for lipsticks and rouges and stuff like that, those types of pigments, uh, it was a, a trial and error thing, and a guy would find something that worked real good, and then that's what he would use, and and he might give the secret to one person, and he might not, and you know, it was it's still to this day, ink is one of the mysteries, the deep dark uh, secrets in tattooing that that nobody really divulges the uh, uh, the 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 true uh, recipes and art, you know, <laughs> for it's one of the last of the. Uh, of the deep dark secrets, you know, the, uh, that's out there, and 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 because it's already ready, pre-mixed and uh, available, not many people mix colors from powders anymore. Um, I still do, but I'm kind of I own a museum. I got to kind of hold on to some of the old school, right? <laughs> and that's how I was taught. So, um, but uh, the pigments actually, since you asked about them, start out as an actual powder, and this kind of gives you an idea there. They're just more like a um, Oh, I would say like a dye or something like that. That's what the powders, uh, um, uh, you know, a lot of times that's what they look like. But okay, and uh, now what we're looking at here is a display case uh, that has several different pigments. He's got probably 15 or 20 different colors. Yep. Are most, of the, most of these are powders, right? Well, they're actually pre-mixed inks. Okay. And they, um, but they start out as powders, and that's why I have the powders in there. Uh, and then what so do they mix them with? Um, now that's there's a there's a, a a broad range there. You you don't know the the word proprietary is in there, so um, you can you using stuff like water. Or, yeah, uh, mainly. Or do you the, get the, into like the, acetones and stuff? No, no. Well, I hope not. I mean, who knows? That's that's one of the reasons why I do my own pigment make my own pigments is because I know for a fact what's in them, and what's in the the standard ingredients is uh, a, a like an ethyl alcohol, so. Um, triple distilled vodka, something along those lines, you know, a clear grain alcohol, something along those lines, uh, to just to kind of dissolve, be a solvent for the pigment. And then there's usually um, uh, sterilized water, distilled water, um, glycerin, uh, and then oftentimes uh, something like witch hazel or something like that will be thrown into it. And that's like the basic old school. There's five, you know, there's five components to it. Well, now but with the alcohol and stuff in it, does the tattoo ink burn when no, it goes in? No, it's such a small amount that okay. it's not. That it's not uh, it's I just not know really when you stick thing. alcohol on a cut, it about sends yeah, you. Yeah, well, burns like We hell. call that hand sanitizer cut finder 100. Yeah, yeah. Because you got a cut yeah. on your finger and you I put that sanitizer that on, you know right where it is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I found that one out. Yes, uh, uh, but no, it's not. It's it's it doesn't. There's there's so little like, you know, there's so little of it that it's not enough to to 
to burn. Now, if the tattoo artist was to spray you down with alcohol after tattooing you, that would that would hurt like hell. But uh, the ink itself isn't. <laughs> and, and when you're Actually, tattooing, does it does it mess up the skin? I mean, does your skin kind of trashed and scab over, or, or what happens um, when when they're poking all these holes? Well, when it, it it's they heal kind of if they're if they're if they're healed properly if the person takes care of them the right way and the tattoo artist isn't a butcher which could be part of the deal and you never know I mean, because some tattooers are rough and some are you know everybody's got a different hand right to it. you know some are heavier than others um, but it really comes down to aftercare a lot of times if the person takes care of the tattoo properly it shouldn't scab up uh, except for maybe a mild like very thin um, Layer and then it usually will flake off like a sunburn does. So it's. And what like, do you mean take care of it? Um, Vitamin keep it, keep E it, or keep it clean using a a, a good fragrance-free hand lotion, uh, keeping it out of the sun, keeping, which is hard here I'm sure for people to stay out of the lakes and streams and swimming pools and hot tubs and all that for a couple of weeks and, um, you know, the, just kind of basic common sense things. But the two big ones is keeping it clean and and properly. Uh, uh, moisturized, not over-moisturized, not under, you know, so there's all these right. factors that uh, can come into play. I had a guy one time come in and he says, uh, he came back after a, a, a two weeks I tattooed him and he came back and he's like, my tattoo's all messed up and it was just all gnarly and it was, this is when I was down in uh, uh, Moscow and, and it was just all gnarly and just scabbed up and just really gross and all that and I, and I looked at it and I said, what did you do to it? And he goes, kind of gave me a blank look for a second and he goes oh well um well the day after i got it done we went camping down at the river and uh <laughs> and so and i went yeah we went camping huh and i said they have a shower there and he's like well no but we were in the river and i said well do you remember the part about me saying no you know lakes swimming pools hot tubs rivers creeks streams and i've added now ponds swamps marshes <laughs> wading pools water slides you know, et cetera. So, I mean, he didn't take care of the tattoo properly, so it didn't heal, you know, right? So a lot of it is in the, the you know, if it's applied properly, once we're done, then it's in the hands of the, of the uh, um, person who gets, yeah, the person who gets the tattoo itself. So, um, yeah. So okay. We, 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 we kind of got off on a tangent there from how tattoos happened uh, <laughs> well this is all this is all news to right, me right. like i said I, so, I have no clue so just to, uh, maybe to, to 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 jump back to the i was talking about the different methods and in about the 1850s because you're hearing it in the background the tattooing going on right you, you mentioned that in the mid 1800s there were a few inventions that came about that with the advent of electricity that came about that changed the face of tattooing completely because before it was poked, pushed, or, or tapped in. Um, very, uh, very basic methods, you know, uh, um, not a lot of technology behind that, you know. And so then in the 1830s, they came out with the electromagnetic coils, and in, by the mid to late 1830s, they had started to work on the, the door buzzer, doorbell principle. Okay. And by the 1840s, they actually had patented a doorbell mechanism and the doorbell mechanism basically had two electromagnetic magnetic coils in line uh, with an armature bar and basically you hit the power and it would make the bar go up and down that you used to push a needle 
uh, up and down uh, into a handpiece, and then the ink was put on that way, and it went so much faster because something like that will do you know, 90, 100 uh, cycles per second, whereas in you can only get in how many taps is your right. pokes that you can within a second's time. So it made things go a lot faster. Well, somebody got smarter on, along the way and adapted um, one of these instruments. And there's an argument, was it the doorbell mechanism or was it the Edison stencil pen? So in 1876, Thomas Edison came up with a uh, autographic stencil pen. And uh, I've got a patent picture over here that I could show you of it. And basically what it was, was a reciprocating, it was almost like an engraver. And okay. so it had a point that went up and down real fast. Well, some tattoo artists went, wow, I attach needles to that. And, you know, hot damn, I've got a, you know, something that I can work with just like a pen. And the early tattoo machines, they even said it's just like using a pen and, and all that. So um, that's where the advent of electric tattooing came in. So somewhere between the 1850s, either with... Um, uh, if my theory about the doorbell mechanism is right, and people have, and it's been historically shown, I mean, there are tattoo machines that have been uh, converted from doorbell mechanisms, and the principles are damn near the same. Um, uh, but we don't have any dates or anything to put on them because at, at some point in history, I mean, you didn't have business licenses. They didn't have photographs in, in newspapers, so you got a newspaper, it was a, it was a sketch or a drawing. Right. So if you got a, you know, picture of some guy tattooing and it's some little tiny thing in the corner and it's like a rough sketch and who knows what he's got in his hand, the tattooer's got in his hand. Um, tattoo art, art shops were it's hidden in barber shops and back alleys and on ships and things like that at a certain point in time too. So it's really hard to put that, to peg that exact, was, was it this instrument or was it this instrument was, you know, um, and they tie it to the Edison because a guy named um, Sam O'Reilly in 1891, uh, invented a handpiece that he patented that was called the first tattooing device and it had the motor off of an Edison stencil pen on it. Okay. So that was one thing that led to that. And then the other thing was is there are a couple of pictures, uh, sketches and whatnot showing uh, O'Reilly actually using an Edison stencil pen type device for tattooing. But then another guy came along, Elmer Getchell, about the same time and he <laughs> he had one that was more like the doorbell mechanism. So. There's no, there's no real hard. Hey, this was the day. This was the, in, you know, the instrument that right. was used that made that big change uh, in tattooing. But it was an electrical uh, uh, instrument that just changed the. Because you could take a tattoo that would take you three hours to do and do it in 45 minutes because you had electricity pushing it and you had the, the those needle punctures. You know, were a hundred times more than what you were able to do per second. Right. Um, and so you could get a lot more ground covered. You could attach multiple needles to it to, to, to be able to put more ink in in, in a larger uh, space, larger area. So that's kind of where it made the, the crossover, I think. Went from the three basic methods to what we have now, which is uh, modern electric tattooing. And um, I guess you can say it's still modern because if you go back to the 1850s for electric tattooing, I mean, that's still not very, you know, it's 170 years, so. Right. It's not, uh, it's not very old, but in the same sense, it's, tattooing is really rich with history. Um, and then I think I was saying before, um, not until recently have people actually been writing stuff down and grabbing stuff from collections and putting it together and trying to find as much information as they can about the person. And sometimes they just find, you know, 20 sheets of the guy's design sheets 
and a few of his tools and whatnot and can get a little story here and there and everything and they put a book together and it has a, as much information as, as there is available because this guy's dead and you know the people that knew stories of him are either dead or the stories have gotten watered down so much that they're you know or they're complete unknowns you know you never know right on that one but uh, um, and so people have started putting books together and if they would have done that 30 40 years ago boy I'll tell you what we'd have some really neat really neat history written down but well tattooing's uh, kind of become a, a big thing in what the last 10 15 20 years I'd say it started when I got into tattooing it was still for um, it was still for biker sailors and women of low moral character okay military that kind of thing you know right you didn't, you didn't your common person going into a tattoo shop they were still scary and you know all that and they were just the most people got tattoos weren't you didn't see a lot of lawyers and whatnot although they did get tattooed you know doctors lawyers all kinds of people um, but you know it was more common that it was bikers sailors women of low moral character uh, I have a bumper sticker I have collections of business cards and stickers and all kinds of stuff like that I have a bumper sticker uh, in the collection that actually says uh, tattoos not just for sailors and whores anymore <laughs> and so well so, so was it was it more of an underground I think type uh, art for a lot of years or up until probably the well no, I know a lot, of, like you said, sailors. I know that people went into the military yeah. and they'd come back yeah, out yeah. with tattoos people, of an anchor or a naked yeah, lady and, and or something. Sometimes people but, would just get one little tattoo, you know, uh, as carnivals traveled through towns and stuff like that. The carnival tattooer would tattoo them, or if they were close to a, a in a big city or close to a, a military uh, port or base or whatever, there were tattooers there. Um, but there's been tattoo shops, you know, going all the way back to the the turn of the. Uh, uh, of the century or the 20th century so uh, in the late 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 1800s and then into the early 1900s I mean there were tattoo shops uh, uh, most of them were um, this was really common up until the 30s and 40s a lot of shops were in the back of barber shops or arcades or uh, well, I think the barber like shops back in the day they did bloodletting and they did oh, they all, did all kinds, kinds of stuff. I mean they yeah, were yeah. kind of the doctor yeah, too I was reading about a, one place that, that, that they had a, a in the the tattoo place was at the back of a, a four chair barber shop with the shine station and the whole nine yards so you had you had the you walk could walk in the door you could get your shoes you know buffed and shined you could get a haircut and then all the way in the back you could go get a tattoo so okay <laughs> but things you know places shops and stuff like that started really coming out I would say uh, tattoo shops were big in the advents of the wars like World War one tattoo shops were big there were lots of tattooers all over the place so you had them all around the military bases and whatnot and then you had the carnival circuit which is a way that there were a lot of tattooers that were on that route too um, and a lot of those were tattoo attractions so okay um, they would be a husband and wife team there was a this team Stella Duffy and Stella Grassman and they both tattooed and Stella was the tattooed lady so you know she she brought uh, um, business and then she actually did it herself and then at one point they actually settled down and when they got off of the carnival circuit they settled down in uh, uh, Philadelphia uh, for a while and tattooed there and uh, there's quite a story about them they separated at one point and then they actually remained friends and were buried right next to each other in the end even though huh. they went separate ways I'm rambling off sometimes I do that no that's but, fine uh, but, you know one but, of the first things I see when I walk in here is lots of art 
all over your walls. Now, are these stencils something that you put on somebody? Yeah, and then you then you go ahead and tattoo from the stencil. Well, there. Or do you draw it on, or, or just what's the process there? The the design sheets um, are all, a lot of them are production sheets, or they're you know hand drawn stuff that's done by by artists themselves or us or, or whatever. But a lot of it, uh, the stuff you see is is uh, uh, like over here is all production uh, flash and on that big wall there. Um, and uh, artists would do design sheets and then they would sell them to other artists and then that way you could, uh, um, you know, get different art from different people uh, on the wall. And it was called Flash and that's what it's still to this day is they call it Flash. And uh, the reason for that is I've heard several stories uh, the one is, is the more of it you had on the wall and more color and stuff it was, the flashier your shop was. Right. So it just kind of got cut down to flat, being called flash. Uh, another one that uh, I was told was it was they would take the design sheets and they would have um, rivets in them. Like you can see them on these right here on the corners. They were taped off and had rivets in them. Okay. See how that has the rivets right. in the corners? And so what would happen is, and this one has it too, um, and what would happen is, is they would put rivets in all their sheets mounted on boards and then they would tie them together with wire or, um, you know, leather, uh, lacing or whatever. And then they would, when they got to the town that they were, the carnival was at for the week or whatever, they would set up their booth and then they would, uh, and then they would hang the sheets down off of the top of the booth deal. And then, um, they would work, and when it was time to pack up, they'd just pull the sheets down, and they would just fold right up into a little stack. Okay. And they could take them down in a flash and, okay. and move on to the next town. So, well, so those are the two. Were they able to use these? Uh, are those canvas? They look like they're canvas. They're they're actually mounted on board. It's it's like a a, a watercolor uh, paper. And so, how do they get that from there to your skin, or does the or does the artist just freelance from that? There were guys who were freehand art, and, and still to this day, people who could draw right on the skin. Um, I had a friend of mine uh, just here recently, Judy Parker, um, and uh, she's been tattooing since like 1978, and she's an awesome illustrator, an awesome artist. She draws it right on the skin. Uh, there's a guy who works uh, with us here, Robert McNeil, the the real old folk of the old folks home. <laughs> He's been tattooing over 40 some odd years. Wow. And, and uh, uh, I think he just turned 69. Um, and Robert's one of those, you know, masters that can draw right on the skin and, you know, all that. is able to do that kind of stuff and just really pull it off beautifully. Um, but the way the um, the design sheets... And I guess uh, the best way to explain it is what they did in, in, the be in the beginning, you had to be able to draw it right on. And then they came up with the, uh, the acetate and the celluloid stencils, which are these guys right here. Okay. Which is just a base of basically a piece of plastic um, or acetate. Um, before that, it was celluloid, but that was before the advent of the plastics, you know, acetate. Um, and it would be put over the design, and then you would take a cutter, which was basically a scribe. Uh-huh. And the outline of the actual stencil would be scribed into the, the acetate and it would leave grooves into it. Okay. And right here, here's an example of that right here. And you can actually feel the grooves in it. And, and so you can imagine there's a picture of that from the, the, the wall art. And then uh, like an example here, this rose, you would take a piece of this acetate and put it over top here and then trace out with the scribe all the lines that you needed in order to um, 
Oh, wow. Put a pattern down on the skin. That had to have taken an hour or two. You, in it takes as, to get it take, the as long ready. as yeah, it takes as takes as long as it does to actually you know do a tracing. If you once you got good at it, it would be just like doing a tracing. Um, and uh, what they would do is, and I can actually. And we're looking at what we're looking at here is is pieces of plastic that are six inches square, three inches round. Uh, two inches round that have different pictures on them that they've set over the top with a, this clear plastic or acetate as he calls it, set it over the top of a of a print, and then they traced it and copied it so that it would be able to transfer to that. Right. And so every design sheet or every flash sheet would have, for every design on there, there would be an acetate stencil cut for it. Wow. Okay. And so, like... This is where it got a little more complex. So if you had, say, an eagle design, right. and he's flying in one direction, well, there were rules. Like, if you got an eagle on this arm, your left arm, you want him flying forward, right? So on that stencil, he would have to point a certain way. Well, if you went to the left arm to put that on, it would be pointing the opposite direction. Right. So you either had to do one of two things. You either had to cut two acetates, one of it flying one way, one of it flying the other way, so you could put them, you know, and an eagle's an example uh, of one of the things that, you you know, you want it right. in the right direction. You want the dragon's head pointing forward, you want the eagle flying forward, you know, that kind of thing. Um, or some guys, somewhere along the way, I couldn't say who did, figured out you could just flip it over and then recut it on the other side, and then that way you got what they call a double cut, so you could powder okay. the other side. So what would happen on the stencil thing is, and I can, I found my stencil I can actually and I love showing people this and I don't have all the stuff together for it but here's one of the the uh, acetates here and if I can find it um, it's a little easier to, to explain with one in hand but um, what they would do is they would take a powder that was usually made up of charcoal or um, graphite or both uh -huh. and the powder would be put onto the um, stencil itself would be kind of uh, sprinkled on there and then it would get rubbed into the grooves and so the grooves would be full with that stencil right. powder you'd knock off the excess and then the skin was prepped shaved um, and all that and then the just a super thin light coat of, of vaseline or something along those lines hardly oh. any and then the stencil itself would be put onto the skin and then pushed on hard enough to to set that that powder on there and then removed and it would leave an actual pattern there. The worst part about that was you had to be really good because once you wiped that powder was gone so you had to be really you know you had to know how far to go with those lines and you had to be real careful about the way you wiped and, and all that so you had to be a decent uh, tattoo artist or a decent artist because if that stencil went you had to you had to wing it. You had to kind of figure out how to get that in there, right? And all that. So, so and it was just a transfer of color to the skin, well, and then you were able to, to follow just to make that. An outline, then you were able yeah, to find that. Just to make an outline, and then all your shading color would be done after the fact. Okay. But it gave you something to 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 work off of as a basis. And uh, these were the norm up until the 70s and early 80s. Um, the guy I learned from still used acetate stencils uh, in, into the mid 80s. But uh, it's kind of funny because acetate stencils are, um, are an outdated technology that was replaced by an outdated technology. 
And, okay. I, and I love the story of this one, and we'll go back over here to this, because, and, and you guys will remember this. Some people, I, I, I put pictures up on this, this exhibit so that people could see it, because not a lot of people remember the Ditto machine. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, so somewhere along the, somewhere along the way, um, and I believe this was in the 60s somewhere, I've heard, heard two ways that I've heard it told. Uh, either a tattoo artist, uh, wife, girlfriend, whatever, friend, who knows, um, was a, uh, did clerical work, was a school teacher, secretary, something along those lines, and made copies with those ditto machines. Okay. Well, And you're talking about the old ones that dipped in ink and you ran it around with a handle and it pumped out, out the... Yeah, so yeah what, that's what they had when I was in school. Yeah, it was, it was uh, I remember in, in, in the 70s as a kid, it, the, you know... In, in it was before teacher, Xerox the teacher, came out. The teacher would say, "Okay, you get to come today and help me make the make the copies." And yeah, and you get to, and, and it would, all the copy would be all purple. And right. Be it, but you just, you know, and they show it in the Christmas Story movie where all the kids smell the paper. And yeah. Everybody, yeah. everybody who's old enough to know laughs because we all smelled the paper. And that's what's wrong with me. Maybe maybe I got to go to the office and make copies too many times. That's that's what happened. But um, so. You know, that was the thing. And the Thermofax machine that, that actually made the transfer, which was the Spirit Master, which is this paper here, which, um, uh, you know, it has a base, just basic paper, then it has a layer that actually has the pigment on it that's uh, heat sensitive, and then it has a, a, a another piece of paper that the... It's the, kind of like the old carbon paper. Yes, exactly. Okay. Very, very similar, but yeah. it's heat transferred. And then in the end, you get like this here, which is just the image on the white paper and that was what they used to call the spirit master and then on those ditto machines if you remember it hooked onto that roll right, right there it was a full sheet of paper and it hooked onto the roll there and then the chemical was in there mm -hmm. and it moistened the paper and then as you rolled it that chemical made it transfer onto the paper well somebody i heard that so the so the one is the the wife girlfriend you know clerical work whatever school teacher deal the other one i heard was a tattoo artist friend and client was a janitor at a school and from picking up all in the trash and all this stuff that purple will get all over you real right. easy it doesn't oh, yeah. take much it doesn't take much to get that purple you know i show people every now and then and i, I mean it really doesn't take much to get that purple on your right. fingers yeah you know? and once it gets on there it doesn't come off very well i mean you can see that's just not coming right off and so uh somehow they would what what is that what is that that's sticking to your hands, you know, whatever? How, did, how What is that stuff? And so I'm sure that janitor or secretary or whatever said, oh, well, it's this, and showed them the process. And then they figured out that, you know, uh, something, an alcohol-based uh, soap or something along those lines would actually put the transfer onto the skin, and it would stay and it would last much longer. So you could actually get through a whole entire outline and not lose the, the stencil while you're doing it, not have to worry about if you wiped it off or whatever. So that comes along. Well, during the time that that came into tattooing, it was starting to get phased out because, as we all know, in the 80s, late 70s, 80s, the 
top, great big copy machines are as big as rooms, you know, right. started coming out and you could, you know, at school, the school finally got its first black and white copier, you know, I can remember in the late 70s. Or Xerox, whatever. of it was, course. Yeah, big Xerox machine, you know, great big, big as that display case. Bigger, and then you the know. controversies then, came with who sat on the machine and took, right, a, took a picture. Their butt. Yeah, that's exactly. Um, <laughs> so that was the big started, controversy back then. They started phasing these out and by the 80s, I mean, nobody was using these anymore except right. for in, you know, second and third world countries. Well, by the 90s, I mean, they've really been phased out because then color copiers and whatnot. And, and I remember buying at school auctions and whatnot, I remember buying the, the Thermomaster machines and we'd buy them cheap and then turn around and sell them for, you know, a good profit. And, and now I wish I would have kept like a, 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 a crate load of them because now they're just, you know, I was getting them for 50 bucks back then and selling them for 250 and now I, if I would have got them for 50 bucks stack back then, I could sell them for, you know, a thousand now. So <laughs> right. But, anyways, back to the the, the you know outdated technology. So, um, as time progressed, I mean, I don't think they use them in third world countries anymore, because the 39.99 all-in-one printer right. copier scanner things are everywhere. Facts, I mean, and, and yeah, so it's exactly. so it's an outdated technology. And the only reason that they make this actual spirit paper the transfer paper that they used to use for the master copies for those ditto machines. The only reason they make this paper is for tattooing. And if it wasn't for tattooing, all this technology would be something that you would be reading about in a museum. Well, <laughs> that, that's kind of what we're doing. <laughs> but, but, you know, I mean, and I have a modern version of the machine over there that, uh, that, that does the stencils. But um, I always find that a really interesting thing, uh, and I love to talk about the stencils when people come in because it's an outdated technology that was replaced Repurposed. By, an out, yeah, by an outdated technology. And it seems like everything in tattooing has had a root, you know, tattoo artists have been very um, adaptive. You know, they see something that looks like, hey, this is, this can work, then they'll incorporate it, tinker around, make it work, and if it works, it works, and if it doesn't, a lot of trial and error. I mean, like I was saying about the inks, I mean, uh, right. uh, 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 my adopted dad was a tattoo artist, and he he had we used to go to the hot springs in Bozeman, Montana, where he lived, and I remember sitting in the hot springs with him in his shorts, and uh, he uh, had all these scribbly, scrapey lines, you know, these lines of all these different some colors that were barely there, and some of them weren't, weren't different colors at all, and and uh, and I asked him about it, and he says, oh, I was trying this new green out, or I was trying this new red out, or whatever. And so, <laughs> If you didn't have somebody to tattoo it on, you just tattoo it on your own legs. So his top of his knees were just all big scribbly spots and just, <laughs> huh. yeah, it's pretty wild, you know. But uh, uh, um, well, so do you got to go to school for this, or is this something that you um, learn on the job? It's an apprenticeship thing. It's, it's an apprenticeship. Properly, there's schools now, which I mean, I kind of am against the schools. Because it, in some states it's a required thing, which um, you know how that happened, I don't know. It's gone nuts. But you can spend a lot of money for a very little amount of training and get a get a certificate and a handshake and sent down the road. Ten grand later, ten grand and six weeks later. Uh, usually, a, a formal tattoo apprenticeship is a two-year thing. Right. <clears throat> Just like any As other tra most trades, like any other trade, you know, there's an apprenticeship and it lasts a while. And there's, you know, but there's so much more that you can learn hands-on with somebody, you know, day to day than you can get through a quick, you know, a school uh, session where there's ten other people 
or 20 other people depending on the state or where it is and you know statistically what point in time I mean there's become more and more tattooers as time has gone on um, you're not getting that one-on-one you know deal right. so so I think they're kind of a scam in a sense and then I think that people get taught the, the basics and then just get you know here you go um, you know do with it as you will and they either get in with somebody who kind of takes them under their wing and kind of shows them or they pay attention or they practice enough or whatever or they wind up selling their equipment on eBay or wherever to whoever and going and getting a job in some other vocation of some sort but um, it's been tattoos been way hyped up so there's a lot more of them nowadays a lot of people a lot more people doing it nowadays so thus you have the schools um, but the apprenticeship thing is the way you know most of us did it um, and those are still going I mean there's tattoo shops they're still doing apprenticeships I don't think all of them are doing them quite as well as they used to I was going to say, how do, you pick, how do you pick a tattoo artist versus a tattoo butcher? Well, you look at their work. <laughs> you just, right? you just That's the first thing. I'd say look at their work. Uh, second thing is to take a look at the shop, because if the shop's just a total a disaster and nasty and all that, it smells like old Budweiser cans, and, and, uh, and I got a great story about that if we had time I mean I can go on for hours but you know uh, if the place is nasty and the work doesn't look good then yeah that's a butcher uh, so mostly word of mouth just ask your friends word of mouth is a good way to find out like. yeah, yeah yeah word of mouth now with social media and all that stuff and Google you can just go look at reviews you know things like that okay um, sometimes you got to take those with a grain of salt because sometimes it's just some vindictive you know friend of the tattooers ex-boyfriend or girlfriend, you know, that gets on there and writes a bad review just to be vindictive. I mean, you can do that nowadays. So, right. Yeah, no, I'm, I, I'm, 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 in a, I'm in the flooring business, a trade. <laughs> right. And it's the same type of thing. Yeah, you know, yeah. you can do a hundred really nice jobs and have people review your stuff and you screw up on one job. That's right. And, changes you everything. know, oh yeah, people, people will badmouth you or give you a bad yeah, review yeah. or whatever. And, and no matter how hard you try to take care of some customers, yeah, it, just it, it comes back and bites and you. And, and when you're working with the public yeah. you're going to have we're, we're going to have problems right. and sometimes it's just a personality clash and other times you did screw up right you know exactly. i'm not going to say i never screwed up on yeah. anything oh, you I know can't and, say that and uh, didn't deserve say that I have, didn't but... deserve an unhappy <laughs> customer we all make mistakes so, tattooing is like you that's a that's a can be a very you know <laughs> drastic mistake if you make one so right you know and and it goes back to where apprenticeship is good because you've got somebody there guiding you and, and all that. Um, I think some people don't, the, the, the I want it right now uh, generation doesn't want to wait out the two years and doesn't want to quite you know go through that whole thing. And I ask a lot of those people, well, what would you do if you were wanting to become a lineman or a, a pipe fitter or you know whatever because their apprenticeships are four years right and they you know and then like uh, people have complained about the hazing and tattoo apprenticeships well you get into the military you get hazed you, you get hazed to get into a fraternity or sorority I mean if you're a, a want to be an electrician you're gonna get hazed a little bit they're gonna test your your metal and uh, yeah uh, uh, and people I've, I've heard that's one of the complaints oh you're just there to be a slave you're just there to be you know clean up all the time well of course yeah because you got to learn that keeping the shop clean is important I've got a book from the early 1900s that has an apprenticeship agreement in it oh yeah and yeah. you basically agreed to sell your soul to, much, that, yeah. to that master yeah but at we the end of the two years 
he was he was supposed to have you trained to be yep. on a pre, or to it. be a, a journeyman in whatever right. it was exactly and there was an agreement there and mm -hmm. and he used you for mopping well, I, the floors or cleaning the scraps yep, or exactly. I mean that was your job but exactly. in the process of but you also got you to learned. watch you got to you learn. got to watch you got to the, learn you got hands on and and it could have been pretty taskmastery right. whatever oh yeah but, some of them were but at the same time sometimes the hardest taskmaster master creates the best. Right, uh, journeyman. Right. right, exactly, exactly. Uh, uh, the guy who brought me into tattooing was an old carny tattooer, so I never got the, you know, the real strict, you know, we need to keep things clean aspect of it uh, uh, so much because he was a carny tattooer. But then when I met the old man and when he took me under his wing, and I call him my adopted dad because that's basically what he was. Uh, uh, he kind of changed a lot of that stuff um, and kind of showed me some some you know, newer ways to do things and to get on top. But he used to do this one thing uh, that was just, everybody thought, oh, this, what, a, what an asshole for him doing this. But what he would do is he'd tell you, go in and clean the bathroom. And he'd have you go in and clean the bathroom up and get everything nice and tidy and everything. And you might clean the bathroom. And, and then he would go in and, and to use the bathroom and he'd, he'd piss on the back of the seat and the lid a little bit and get a little on the floor. And then he'd wash his hands and splash water all over and throw the paper towel on the floor and then he you know he'd go back out and he'd say you didn't clean that bathroom get back in there and clean it and you go in and you'd be like you dirty old you just god i just cleaned this right and so then you'd have to clean it again and it was actually a lesson it was teaching you that anybody can go into your bathroom at any time and piss all over the seat and splash water everywhere and leave paper towels on the floor and whatever and you have to be able to keep in mind that that can happen at any time and that a clean bathroom is important because people ask me well how do you tell if it's a good tattoo shop or not and I always say well look at their portfolio and all that and see if they've got good work like you said ask around and see, see if they've got good reputation and whatnot uh, um, I said but if you really are concerned about cleanliness in any way I said use the bathroom so that the bathroom isn't clean then the rest of the place isn't going to be clean. Because, you know, somebody who's going to take time to, you know, and, and really, if you're going to take all the time to be anal to keep all your stuff in your work area clean and all that stuff and do the whole process right, why would you leave your bathroom a mess? You know, somebody who's going to be that meticulous about, you know, cleanliness is definitely going to keep the bathroom clean. So Good point. Yeah, I tell people that all the time. Just, just look at the bathroom. If the bathroom looks horrible, then, <laughs> you know, the sink is brown because nobody's washed it in, you know, eight months. You know, <laughs> unless it's supposed to be a brown sink, and then right, you know, right. But yeah, so that's kind of a thing. Here's these bell mechanisms that I was talking about. And, now, how old are some of these? Um, these ones. This goes back. I think this guy right here goes back to the 20s because I took it out of a house that I used to. Um, and they're still bells. They haven't they been still, converted over no, to uh, been over, tattoo machines. No, they haven't been converted over to tattoo machines. And you've got probably 10 or 12 of those there. Yep. Uh, and, a, and a picture of one of the patents. And um, the, uh, what I like about that is, is you can compare, you can look at this patent and you can look at kind of look at this patent and you can go, wow, there's similarities. And you can look at the bells and the way that they're set up, there's a lot of similarities as well. And we're looking at we're looking at a case here that's got probably uh, 25 different mm -hmm. tattoo machines from the on. 20s, the 50s. Yep, 20s uh, is the oldest. oldest and and they've got the same dual uh, 
dual coil magnet, yeah. mechanism that the old doorbells used to have. Yep, exactly. Um, and so if you look at the, it's just a flip over. It's almost exactly right. the same the same thing. It's just flipped over. You and where the little contact. dinger is is where the is yep. where the needle right. uh, comes is, down so and the makes armature contact. Here, and you got the armature here, and so the needle would affix here, and people would when they uh, modified them would chop this off and affix the needle there. And then they would use the frame of this and they would cut all the rest of that out of there and then they would affix a handpiece onto it so that they could hold it and boom, there you go, you got a tattoo machine. The difference was is the frame was on the other side. Wow. And this device right here kind of is a better one for the example all around of that. You can see that the frame on that, you see the frame right. on that is very similar to a tattoo machine frame, even if we went to one of, one of these more It almost looks identical. Ones. You can see, mm -hmm. like this is a perfect example right here, This it's almost like a, a, a mirror image yeah. of it. And then, you know, so very similar mm -hmm. concept. Yeah, very similar concept. Um, they're, they're based on the same principle, a set of contact points, an armature bar, two inline electromagnets, and then uh, uh, the frame being that ground, the coils being the, the positive uh, uh, part, you hit power to it, it charges the coils, it pulls the armature bar down, it breaks the contact at the contact point, turns everything off, bounces back up, and just repeats the cycle, recycles over and over again, about 100 uh, cycles per second. So Per second or per minute? Per second. Per second? Yeah, so wow. within a minute you're getting you know, what, 6,000, yeah. uh, you know, wow. punctures, so, yeah. It's that's a lot, that, that's almost, that almost seems like it'd be hard to control as far no, as... No, because in the handpiece, everything's, con it is held really in place perfectly and, and with certain amount of tension and all that, so it really isn't, it really isn't that hard. And how did you feed the needle? Was, it, was there a... Uh, Ink reservoir in no, these things? But, or no, just... but there was a guy who, who tried to patent a thing that, like that, and I don't. I have a book full of patent drawings, but I don't have it here. Where the guy had come up with a system that was like a gravity feed, uh -huh. and so it would feed from the back of your machine, and it would feed down inside the tube, and uh, uh, and and do the ink that way. Um, the best way, I guess, to explain um, how the ink and all that works is. You can see Richard doing it right here. Um, he's got ink cups out there, and then his machine's all set up. And uh, uh, so just like a pen, uh, like a, a quill pen or whatever, or a paintbrush and paints, you dip in like he just did, and then it has a bit of a reservoir there, and then the pigment sits in, or the ink sits just in, like the, the old in, the in the reservoir, and then the needles move through it. So... Um, um, so that's where you get your control and everything, and that's how you get your ink in, is because they're in caps. And then the, you know, that those repetitions being as fast as they are, actually is what makes that, you know. And it looks like he's kind three, of fanning it when he's yeah, yeah. when it, he's just putting like it a, on, just so. like a paintbrush. And different the way you use. And the, because of the the number of needle strikes that it's right, making, it right. It, it, Paints it in just as fast as right like a, as you like can as you, as you can paintbrush yeah wow. so that's actually he's working about as fast as he would on paper um, and the tattoo and he's doing is just unbelievable he's doing an awesome job on that isn't that nice it is really really nice but uh, uh, you know seeing him work you can kind of get a, 
uh, an idea of that. How you know if he was if you were doing that one poke at a time, poke, right, poke, 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 poke. poke oh, I can't. Poke, poke. And he's like, it, how, it would it would take you, you know, to do a line, say two inches long, with the hand poke method. You're taking, you know, it might take you a minute, minute and a half to do that. A two-inch line with a tattoo machine take ten seconds. Yeah. So, you know, it, it, depending on how the line is, but you know, I mean, you can move so much faster. So something that would have taken two hours now can be done, like I said, in 45 minutes, uh, in full color and everything, and, and, and just beautiful uh, uh, as can be. So. Um, Whatever it was, whether it was that autographic marker or the doorbell mechanism or whatever it was, that was the game changer. It just turned the whole thing into a different world uh, uh, because you got speed behind it and versatility. Um, it's a lot easier to use something that's like a pen right. than it is to use something that's that you're trying, you're to, trying jab. to poke with, and if, you know you've got something. Well, like and your this. accuracy would be so much greater because yes. you could yes. take and, and make a flow right. line versus Absolutely. trying to stab. Absolutely. And as your hand was moving, you'd be all over the place. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, wow. This is one of my babies. <laughs> Some of these machines are. Um, well, this one is. They have machines with they what they call on this day and age the Holy Grail machines, which are the ones that. Every collector, museum owner, tattooer would love to have in their in their hands or in their collection, and so I've slowly but surely been going through and trying to get in as many of those Holy Grail machines as I can. It's a lot harder than I mean, there um, used to be before tattooing got as popular as it was that you could find an old tattoo machine and it would be somebody just didn't want it anymore or it was just thrown in the wayside or whatever um, and it was old so we, we don't want that old tattoo machine well, well I'll buy it for you for a couple hundred dollars you know so so a machine like this 20 years ago 25 years ago you probably could have got for two three hundred bucks well now it's two three thousand oh. dollars because wow yeah. I would uh, well, when you're saying when you're saying two or three hundred dollars I'm going for an old tattoo machine that's what we used to and say because it was an old tattoo machine and then historical significance jumped in there and then the amount of tattooers rose and now um, everybody wants a little piece so, right and so the older guys that are retiring that have all these pieces are going wow I'm in high demand now I'm gonna you know uh, the market's gone up, but just like with anything. Right, know? right. And, and then you got rarity. I mean, they may have made... I, I have one machine in here that they there may only be 200 of in the world. Wow. In existence, you know? So, um, you know, and then other machines, like the one I'm holding in my hand, I'm sure there were hundreds and hundreds of them made, and they were all over the world, but they wound up in attics or basements or old boxes or in the landfill or whatever because nobody knew what to do with them. So there's not as many surviving uh, 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 examples. Uh, the thing there. that's sad is I could have one of those sitting someplace and not even know what the heck it was. Yeah. Well, people and some people do in their barns and, yeah. and whatnot and in their attics and, and who knows. You know, you could be in the attic of the house that a tattoo artist owned at one point in time and not even... Not even know. I've always wanted to, and I think I still will. I want to put a trunk together and throw four or five machines that I built in there, and a bunch of bottles of ink, and a bunch of flash that I drew, and other production stuff and whatnot, and just throw a power supply and just a basic traveling get up and putting right. it in the attic of my house, and when we move, leaving it there. Oh. 
<laughs> and see what happens it's, after I'm dead and gone. You know, see if it comes unearthed and if it winds up in a museum or something. Somewhere. Right. You know, I always thought it would be kind of a. If somebody would even know what it was when yeah. they opened up the or, box. You know, yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, because I, I mean, I like I said, I, I don't know much about tattooing or anything, and I'm, I'm actually involved in a lot of different mechanical type things. But if I ran across one of these, I'd be totally dumbfounded as to what the heck I was even looking at. Well, not anymore. Not anymore. <laughs> not anymore. You're right. I'm not educating anymore. myself not little anymore. bit by little right. bit. But not anymore. But uh, you've got on this on this wall here, you've got several different artists that you've got highlighted as far yeah. as uh, uh, yeah, who do. they were. And they must be some of the more famous tattoo artists. Yes, yeah, some of uh, them are. The... Grumble, grumble in the microphone. I just put this new lighting in here and it keeps coming undone. At least it keeps everything lit very well. So, one thing about this new, we had a, we had a, this is our second lo, or actually our third location, but this is the second location in Coeur d'Alene, and we were in a really small spot before, and it had low ceilings on it, and it was, it was only uh, 475 square feet, and this this new location here is just under 1,600 square feet. So, uh, and then we have whatever 18 foot tall ceilings in here. So. Um, this display case was lit so much better because the lights were lower and everything and everything was, you know, and then we got in here and if the, if the lights aren't on, you can, you know, it's really hard. You got to really right. get in there. So the other day I went, well, you've got, got this got one cool, lit up really they nice got those with those cool, little LEDs. Yeah. They got those cool little LED kits and I went and got a couple of those and threw them in there and, and, uh, and it, it changed the, changed the whole thing. But, uh, yeah, I, I've, um. I kind of laid the place out to where it's it's got different you know sections to it. This this of course here is pretty much the machine section, and then there's a case back here uh, uh, behind it that has more tattoo machines, and then I have some more back over here. Um, and then like this section in the corner, well we've got the women in tattooing. Uh, exhibit let's talk about the women in tattooing. We were talking about that a little mm -hmm. bit when we first came in before we started the podcast. Right. But you've got this display coming up with uh, women in tattooing. Go ahead and tell us a little bit about um, this display. Well, it was actually my, my wife kind of had a, a, a bit to do with that. She's, uh, well, she's an archaeologist and anthropologist, and, uh, and, and she only has a handful of tattoos. So, But she <laughs> said to me, um, she knows a lot of people in tattooing and whatnot, uh, us being together for uh, 16 years now. Um, and... Uh, 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 so she knows people uh, in the in the trade and whatnot, and she she sees what I'm doing here, and she helps out, you know, from time to time. So she said, you know, you ought to do uh, uh, an exhibit on women and tattooing, you know, and you could be just a pictorial thing, you could, you know, do whatever. We have this display deal that that uh, that we could put it on, and I went, yeah, yeah, that'd be pretty cool. And so I started working on it. Actually, it's I've only been working on it for a couple of weeks now. And uh, uh, um, right now, I think there's 75 photos, and it covers several different aspects of tattooing. Uh, uh, that when it's it's all pretty much 60s and back kind of thing. So uh, more about uh, the sideshow, uh, some prominent figures, um, a lot about the the tattooed women, the different tattooed women that were out there. Um, of course, all of Oatman, just because that's a really interesting story about her. Uh, the massacre and the abduction and then her being uh, uh, assimilated to the Mojave tribe and getting their traditional tattoos and whatnot and, and, and all that and then going back into uh, uh, 
back into Western society and all that and kind of taking that with her. So it's a very interesting story. Now, he did say Olive Oatman, yep, and Olive that Oatman. A, that's a very interesting story. Look it up on the Internet mm-hmm. and read through it. There's been She's several books. There's been several books written, and and it, the story is just extremely yeah. interesting with yeah. the whole uh, set of circumstances there. I think you can find about Olive Oatman and then the Oatman uh, massacre on Wikipedia. They, they, those are both two sources that have you know a fair decent amount of uh, uh, information. And uh, so I, I wasn't thinking about this before, but how she was. Um, abducted and and all that and she wasn't forcibly tattooed uh you know she as she was assimilating assimilating into the the tribe tribe. it was part of the it was part of the deal women you know got these tattoos and they got them so that their ancestors would uh, recognize them in the afterlife kind of thing and they were you know a lot of tribes used them for spirit guides totems different things like that um but one of the funny things is, is is because i've incorporated in this exhibit um Different uh, tattooed ladies, uh, sideshow attractions and whatnot. Um, I have uh, Gita Salome uh, over here. Let's talk about Gina. Gita Salome. Gita, okay, that's spelled D J D I T A S O L O M E. Yep, and so her real name was Paula Emmer Reinhold, and she was German. She claimed to be Egyptian as part of her sideshow things that she was Egyptian, uh, not German, and uh, she called herself a uh, Gita Salome, uh, uh, La Salome, uh, just Salome. Um, you know, she had different, different little. Um, um, uh, uh, the Blue Woman was another one of her, her titles that she had. Um, and uh, uh, one of her, as many of the tattooed uh, uh, attractions did, um, back in the early, you know, teens and and whatnot, in teens and twenties. Uh, 1920s. The, one of the stories was that they were captured by uh, wild red Indians and forcibly tattooed, uh, <laughs> and and that's how they got their whole body uh, covered. And so um, you could tell. I mean, that that whole thing would be discredited the minute that you actually really started taking a look at her tattoos. You would notice that you know, prints whatever from wherever you know the third whatever of Germany is definitely not something that wild Indians would tattoo on you. No. Nor would they be tattooing roses or European flags or, you know, any of those other things. But as a sell for the sideshow, that's a great story. Um, so, uh, but yeah, she was uh, uh, in in the height of things in the 1920s. She was making, in, in, in her tours in the United States, she was making uh, $250 a week, which... And nowadays, money would be about um, would be about seven thousand dollars a week. Wow! To be a sideshow. To attraction. be a sideshow attraction. Right. For people to just to come in and, and and take a look and maybe be able to buy a pitch card or whatever. Wow! Um, and so um, uh, her tattoos really paid off. They really paid off. <laughs> and it was actually one of the things that I read about her is that she would pay um, she would pay. Uh, if if somebody came along with a new color that she didn't have tattooed in her, she would pay handsomely to have that color tattooed on her. Wow. On her huh. suit. So she would pay really well, like if you had a blue that she didn't have. And so in the beginning, she she said that there were seven that she was tattooed in seven colors, and by the end it was fourteen. Wow. Colors by the end, and, and that wasn't a, an exaggeration. I mean that she truly was uh, tattooed by that many uh, people. Um, 
I th- I've always thought that, um, you know, one of her, uh, maybe one of the things that uh, pushed her to take the name, because it's a, a biblical name, was the fact that um, the actual Salome, who was the uh, son of, or, uh, sorry, the daughter of um, Herod II and uh, Herodias, um, uh, did the uh, 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 did the dance uh, for King Herod, the dance of the seven veils, and he was willing to give up uh, uh, his uh, uh, up to half of his kingdom, whatever she asked, you know, because he was so entranced. And then uh, his mother asked her, or her mother asked her to ask him for the head of John, the John the Baptist on a plate. And so that's kind of how that all came about. Um, and that whole story, that whole biblical story, um, inspired a lot of poetry and music and paintings and things like that. And there was a, a, an, an artist who actually did um, a, a, a depiction of the tattooed Salome and that picture is right here. Okay. And it shows her, you know, very, very scantily clad. Right. Kind of dancing with tattoos on her. And so that might, because of that painting, um, and it was done by a, a French painter, um, that might be part of the reason that she picked up that name. Um, and so, because, I mean, the, the, the New Testament Salome was really, or, or rather there were two of them, but the, the one uh, uh, that, Asked for John the Baptist's head on a plate, um, um, you know she instilled the uh, you know maybe the femme fatale the you know there's, there's just all these things that uh, associated to that so um, I think that painting might have had something to do with you know her Why painting. there's not a lot of information that's like there's not a book written on her that's it's very you know there's just enough there to get, to get the the, the the uh, the gist of it, but there was another Salome in um, in the scripture too that was one of the women that uh, um, that went to was at the crucifixion and was at uh, uh, at the tomb when on the resurrection day too. So I don't know if that had any influence on what, her taking that name either because they referred to her as Salome or Mary Salome, uh, who was uh, 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 the um, was the mother of a, of two of the twelve disciples. Um, so. Um, who knows what the real uh, uh, reason why she picked up that name was. Um, I kind of like to think that it's because of the John the Baptist Dance of the Seven Veils kind of deal. So so there's a fo- I did a focus on her because that's now, a really an, an interesting uh, uh, you know, bit there. Something else you pointed out uh, was that like on uh, Olive Oatman, uh-huh. There's been several books written, right? And you said that for this display, you had to go through all kinds of information, right? And try and reduce it down to like four paragraphs to where right. the story's condensed. And you were saying that that's it's the hardest part of curation. I, it is the, ver- the hardest part about putting anything together in a museum. I mean, uh, putting the photos up and things like that are real easy. Putting the narratives that go along with them can be can be difficult, especially with me. I'm somebody who will talk forever, so that kind of rolls over into <laughs> right <laughs> you know trying to try trying to write a narrative you know and i have to go back through and and uh, and all of oatman was you know there's a lot of information on her so oh yeah it was a lot harder to write about her than it was salome it was a lot easier to write about her because you didn't have five books there wasn't five <laughs> books and it was neat because there was a biblical you know right. deal Connected. so i got to write half of that on the the biblical sense of it you know right um and then there are some 
that are, are really well documented. Um, I'm working on uh, Artoria Gibbons here, and she was like a tattooed lady from um, 19, uh, I think 1919 to 1980 something. Whoa, that's bad. I don't remember. There we go. From 1919 to 1981. And her husband. She was a husband, and uh, her and uh, her husband, Red Gibbons. Uh, they um, traveled the the carnival circuit together, and did the museums and all that, and had tattoo shops and and all that. And so, um, Artoria was the sideshow attraction, and Red was the tattooer. So, she would do the you know basically, and a lot of times, tattooed women their their job was to sit on a stool and just let people look at their tattoos or you know, stand there on the stage and turn and let everybody, you know, see their, and that was that. And then if somebody was really interested in tattoos, well, then they could cut through this way and, you know, her husband, the tattoo guy, would do his tattooing. And sometimes in the 10 and 1 tents, they'd actually just have a guy tattooing. So, you know, in between acts, there'd be a guy, you know, a tattoo set up. So oh. it was really interesting. There's uh, another gal that I have over here, and I haven't finished the narratives on, uh, Stella Grassman. And so there was Deffy and Stella Grassman, and that was a, a couple, and they tattooed together. And uh, uh, same thing, uh, they did the sideshow thing. They were both attractions, and then later on they wound up settling down and, and actually having street shops as well. But a lot of people did do the carnival circuit in tattooing. A lot of uh, uh, early tattooing, uh, a lot of guys who are uh, women that, uh, and it was male-dominated back then who did the tattooing, but. Uh, a, a lot of times the the woman attraction, t you know, the tattooed lady, her husband was a tattoo artist, and so it was his work that she was wearing uh, in a lot of cases. So they kind of worked as teams. Um, and Deffy and Stella did the same thing. Uh, um, and there's there, there's a there's a whole. I mean, I couldn't I could go on and on about the the groups of people that have done that that uh, that team deal. But there were tattoo artists that were just like the tattooed man and or the strong man or a tattooed acrobat. Um, a guy named Paul Rogers was that, and they consider him one of the fathers of, uh, of, of American tattooing. And uh, he, uh, he, was, um, he did all kinds of things, but he was an acrobat in the circus. He was the tattooed man in the circus. He was a strong man. Um, and then he tattooed. Um, but this guy, he was all over the place. He traveled a bunch. He um, tattooed by day and worked the cotton mills by night certain seasons wow. um, when he wasn't on the road with the with the circus. And his wife that he married, Paul's wife, Helen, uh, her, her father owned a sideshow, a traveling sideshow. So that's where they met, was on the circus uh, circuit. And at the time, he was a tattoo man and an acrobat. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, the daughter of the of the uh, carnival, you know, they fall in love, and, and so they did the sideshows together, and so during the season, they did that, and then on off-season, he would tattoo it at night, and then they would work the cotton mills. Huh. Um, so, wow. really wild, huh? So, I was going to say, busy people. Yes, yes, well, and sometimes you didn't, you know, you had to have something else. Right. Um, you know, all the way up into the 70s and 80s, I mean, uh, you sometimes had to have a, a second you know, job or whatever, because uh, like I remember when I first got into it, there weren't that many tattoo shops. So finding an empty chair somewhere was, you know, hit and miss. So sometimes you had to do other things to, to make a living. You know? well, I think the yeah. tattoo, sh or, I mean, not the tattoo shops, uh, the side shows 
were pretty much gone when I was growing up. Yeah, I can't remember going to a gone. carnival and ever seeing a sideshow. Yeah, they don't, the tin and one thing went away in the 50s. Yeah. It started to die out in the 50s. It was, that's, that was, uh, as soon as television came along, the need to go see the oddities at the sideshow became less and less. And then they even had um, museums, oddity museums, which they still have some of those yeah. around. Uh, uh, there's one in the Venice. Ripley's, believe it or yeah, not, kind yeah. of bases itself yeah. on well, that. They had, kind well, of they had ones. Chain, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Barnum, right? P.T. Barnum's museum in New York. You know, he had a, a there, and he had tattoo attractions there, and the, and the three-legged boy, and the dog-faced girl, and all that stuff. But it was just it's in a set place, you know. And Coney Island had stuff like that too, where it started to it came off of the uh, traveling circuit. You know, and it was more circus. It was more the fun for kids and all that, because folks could go home and watch their TV. Right. You know, and they well, didn't, they and now, didn't necessarily and now you don't need, see people going out and doing anything. People don't even go to the circus anymore. With Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey folded up what three, four years ago, and that was yeah. the end of that. And that yeah. was the end of an immense era of, and you know, talk about history. I mean, that's gone, and that's sad because yeah. they were that well, just community events was, and stuff. You know, yeah. have, have suffered greatly because of of so much entertainment yeah. that you don't have to leave your house to nope. do. You don't have to and it's anywhere. sad that people don't get out and do things like oh, they yeah. used to. I mean, communities, I think, have suffered, but also history. When, when you look at your museum here, this thing's not a monstrous museum, but it's packed. I mean, you've got a lot of stuff, yeah, a lot of history in here. Well, <laughs> I can put up more. Yeah, I, mean, I can go all the way to the ceiling. There's a lot there. of history oh. here, and there's a lot of history in all these museums, but I don't right. think the museums are getting the the walkthrough that they should be getting. Yeah, I, you and, know, I agree with you, because I think people don't... Well, they either don't know, because they're, the museums are in obscure places, and it's there's I think there's a certain type of person who likes to go out and seek out those things like my wife and I we're always you know if well, we go that's somewhere us. We, that, that, this it, is why right. we're doing these podcasts right. I'm trying exactly. to trying to get people to to maybe stop at some of these oh, things yeah. Yeah. because well we just stopped at the $50,000 silver dollar, uh, silver bar? dollar yeah. bar. which is more like the 100 and something thousand silver well it's up to 77,000 now or something oh, it's more they've got that. they've got a tally going on the wall oh, do and they it have said 77,000 cuz I've got like six of them on there on, well we put one on there today and I got too. Ones, well, and they only so they only mount those every so often. Right. So like they'll like when they get to a certain number, and then they mount, then they go through and bore out the holes and put the dollars in, and then they, you know, put the names on there and all that. But uh, uh, I actually, oh, we used to go through there every year on the way to the Sturgis Rally to tattoo there, and so we'd stop there to have a drink, uh, you know, at the right. at, the, at the, the the Silver Dollar Bar, and so every year. You know, I'll buy one for I've got one for my wife and I. I got one for my wife. I got one for me. I got one for the the old man. I got one for the the tattoo shop. I got one for you know what I mean. Yeah. Right. It's just like they're all a whole you know a whole bunch of them over the years. Uh, but that's a really fascinating really place neat. that people yeah. just drive by. You yeah. Know? Drive and, right and by there. It's, right it, by it, there. You don't have to stop for very long. But their gift shop. I was amazed at yeah. how reasonably priced. A lot of their items were and yeah, stuff, yeah. you know. It was just a cool little it's, shop. Yeah, tourist trap. <laughs> well, it is a tourist trap. But it's but, a neat one. But it is a you neat know, one. You, I mean, especially going in there and seeing all those silver dollars. I mean, that's kind of a, 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 a real treat, seeing that much, you know, silver in one place. Um, you know. And but just, like this museum, you know, learning about the history and, and uh, you know, all of that kind of stuff, seeing the things that you've got here. This is this is a neat place. This is a place that people ought to stop yeah. at. It's easy to find. I mean, we found it within 
probably 10 minutes of getting off the interstate yeah, here. Yeah, it's a lot easier here than our old location. Our yeah, old location uh, is, you know, and it's a, a lot it's harder a to find. Great place, and you've been super to, to do this podcast with. Oh, I yeah, appreciate absolutely. your time so much, Jake. Absolutely. I could go on for hours. I'm sure you could. <laughs> I could, I could and, literally uh, go on for hours. I'm definitely a little bit more educated on tattoos yeah, yeah. than what I was, and, and hopefully totally. people will really enjoy the show. Yeah, uh, so I usually finish out by saying the world is full of wonders. Get out and explore. There you go. And have a wonder-filled day. There you go. That's awesome. All the roll and go. Where am I to go? Meet Johnny. Where am I to go? For I'm a young and a sailor lad. And where am I to go?